So if you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. As we conclude our study of this wonderful book of Scripture, and as we conclude a reflection on this wonderful servant of God, I continue to think of him and remembering that he is not a king like David or Solomon, that he is not a prophet like Isaiah or Elijah or Ezekiel, that he is not a priest like Aaron or any of the others that followed in his ways. He was a civil servant. Indeed, he had a respectable and responsible position in the court of the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. But yet God had used him in such a powerful way to bring about the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem, to bring about the repopulating of the city that had been uh, neglected, and to bring revival into the hearts of the people. It's amazing what God can do with any individual who devotes himself to the Lord and desires to follow him. Now, if we look at the last chapter, chapter 13, beginning at verse 4, we read that Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain. And some other things are described about this storeroom. In verse 6, But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I returned to the king. Some time later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. And then all Judah brought the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil into the storerooms. Look at verse 14. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. You know, when we uh, read fairy tales or we read books of one kind or another, whether the story states this or whether we just assume it and anticipate it, we expect that when we get to the end, you know, we're going to read, and they lived happily ever after, that everything's going to be all right. Some of my favorite movies I'm watching, and I don't want to mention what they are because I know I'll get nasty letters, but some of my favorite movies, I'm watching this thing unfold, I'm sucked into it, then you get to the end and you say, no, 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 it can't end that way. I will not accept it. And so often I just go home and I imagine my own ending, you know, because I can't take some of the endings that, uh, that I've seen in some movies that have just been riveting uh, for me. The book of Nehemiah is like that. We start the book expecting great things at the end. 
We read how Nehemiah had heard of the terrible things that had befell Jerusalem. And we read of his devotion and dedication to making a difference in the city and among the people. And we read of the opposition that he had endured. And now we come to the end of the book and things have not ended the way we would have liked. Things are not happily ever after indeed. And so it serves to remind us that mountaintop experiences are temporary things. Because there's always the valley below that is waiting for us after we've had the experience of elation and joy that was once ours. Now, there will come a time when the mountaintop experience will be one with no valleys whatsoever, but we're not there yet. Right now, we live in a world where the valleys are present and the mountaintop experiences are few and far between. Now, Nehemiah tells us in chapter 13 that he had left Jerusalem after he had set in order all that we had read about up until chapter 12. He was gone for 12 years. If you look at the very opening chapter of Nehemiah, you'll see it was something like in the 20th or 22nd year of Artaxerxes. Now in chapter 13, it's the 32nd year of Artaxerxes. Twelve years have transpired since the walls were rebuilt. Twelve years have transpired since the repopulation of the city. Twelve years have gone on since the people had experienced the revival of gratitude and thanksgiving that we read about in chapter 12. And now Nehemiah asks Artaxerxes to go back to Jerusalem. And so he comes back, and we're not told for how long. Nehemiah probably is in his 60s at this point. Probably around 40 is when he went to Jerusalem or somewhere in his 40s. Now 12 years later in the mid-50s and now some time has elapsed. He's probably in his early or mid-60s. Nehemiah was probably hoping he was getting ready for retirement. He probably was hoping that all of the challenges he had faced were behind him. And when he comes to Jerusalem, he finds out that everything that had been set in order, with the exception of the walls themselves, has fallen apart. In fact, earlier we read that when the people had rededicated themselves to God, they had signed on the dotted line in a covenant agreement with God that they would observe certain things. And the things that they signed their names to They've already broken here in chapter 13. All three of the things we're going to talk about were things that they had signed their name on the dotted line to be faithful to God to obey. And yet they weren't. The first thing that we read about is that they compromised their sense of worship. And so here Nehemiah comes back. He enters into the temple to see what is transpiring in the place of worship. And he finds that the Jewish people have compromised their worship. Indeed, Tobiah, who is one of his major adversaries, who we thought had been put to rest, whom we thought was now under control and had been disciplined, is now living in the very temple of God itself. During Nehemiah's time, when he was rebuilding the walls, Tobiah wasn't allowed within the city itself. 
And now we find not only is he within the city, but he's in the temple that is devoted to the Lord and the Lord's work. In fact, where he is in the temple is also rather interesting because they have set aside a storeroom. In fact, if you read the text carefully, look at verse uh, 7 or so. It says, he came, he, Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. Verse 8, I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Now look at this. I gave orders to purify the rooms, plural. So while initially there is this one room, we might think of it as a suite is what was given to Tobiah. He had a series of rooms. They had cleared out all of the articles that would have been used for the worship of God And Tobiah is given a place to live right in the temple. The one who had um, opposed Nehemiah and all that Nehemiah had done. The Jewish people had compromised what it means to worship God. They compromised the holiness of the sanctuary in which they were to focus on the living God. There's a great lesson here for us to reflect upon, and that is how We can easily be corrupted by that which we surround ourselves with. I spoke earlier about movies I like to watch, but we do have to be careful about some of the things we watch because they can compromise our walk with the Lord. They can compromise the values we might hold. We have to be careful how we expose ourselves to such things. We have to be careful about the individuals that we associate with. It is not uncommon to be easily sucked in to what those around us would see as uh, problematic with regard to our faith. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the high priest having befriended Tobiah. Now, you and I, we might say, well, listen, time has gone on. Twelve years has occurred. Isn't it possible for Tobiah to have changed his stripes? Is it possible for him to have repented and now walked in a more worthy manner? What you will read later is not only has Eliashib befriended Tobiah, but then one of Eliashib's sons had married one of Tobiah's daughters. And so now we find there's even a problem with regard to the family structure of the high priest of Israel. Look what Nehemiah does. We read about this, we read it, and we think, how could he be like this? You know, our first response is, this is not a very kind, loving thing to do, is it? It says in verse 7, and by the way, three times this phrase comes up in this chapter. Look at verse 7, where he refers to this as the evil thing. The second thing that we'll talk about is the Sabbath. He talks about it as a wicked thing in verse 17. And then thirdly, he's going to talk about how their faith in the Lord was corrupted, and he'll refer to it in verse 27 as a terrible wickedness that had impacted on the Jewish people. So what does Nehemiah do? In verse 7, he says, first of all, we get a glimpse into his character. 
He tells us, I was greatly displeased. He was angry and he was really mad. It says in verse, 20, in verse 7 that he then uh, threw out, I gave orders so that everything in his home, in the household goods, were thrown out of the room. And then in verse 9, he says, I gave orders to purify the rooms. And then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God. It's almost like Nehemiah didn't even ask any questions. He said, this man does not belong there. No matter how repentive he might have been, this was a place for the priests to gather their stuff so they could lead the worship of God. And now this man is living in these midst. And so Nehemiah immediately just throws him out of the room and purifies, almost like fumigates the room and sets it apart for the service of God once again. If we feel Nehemiah has overstepped his bounds, this is not unlike what Yeshua himself did when he entered into the temple and saw that the temple area was being used for the making of money and the selling of items. He just throws over the tables and he takes cords of of rope to drive out the money changers, it says. And he was greatly angered deep in his soul. In fact, the text says that he was outraged by what had transpired. Nehemiah is exhibiting a holy outrage for what has transpired in the temple. Now, we have to be careful about such things because we have to make sure that that which we are outraged about, uh, about ought to be things we ought to be outraged about. And certainly the worship of God is something that we ought to be concerned about, maybe even outraged about when it is compromised. But when there are differences of opinion among ourselves, that's a whole nother story. And there we're expected to have tolerance because not all of us see through a glass darkly. But this was very clear that the temple was to be used for the worship of God and the storerooms were to be used by the priests for that purpose and now it was being used in an unworthy manner. And thus Nehemiah was outraged by what the people had done. They had compromised their worship. Now take a look at verse 14. He then breaks up his sections of outrage by reminding us of his prayer. And so in verse 14, we are told that after he had restored this whole area to the service of God, in verse 14, he says, Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its service. And if we think that Nehemiah might be coming boastful, turn with me for a moment to John chapter 17. Because this is very much like Yeshua's own prayer when he was accomplishing what the Lord had guided him and called him to do. In chapter 17 of John, where we read of his or referred to as his priestly prayer, he says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Yeshua the Messiah whom you have sent. 
I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. If we think Yeshua might be prideful, praying, Lord, glorify me and glorify me with the glory that I had before you, well, we know that he is in perfect uh, relationship with the Father. And thus he's praying that now that the work he was called to do in bringing redemption to the ends of the earth is coming to fruition and is being completed, that the Lord might be glorified and he as well as doing the work of God. And so in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah prays very similarly. He says, remember me for this, the completion of the work of God that God had for him. Do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Now look at verse 15. Not only did they compromise their worship of God, but they also began to treat with contempt the Sabbath day. In verse 15, it says, In those days, Nehemiah also saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in grain and loading it on the donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. And it wasn't just the Jewish people, because in verse 16, men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. So now the Sabbath day was being desecrated. Certainly they're living under the Mosaic law. They had signed their names on the dotted line that they would observe the Sabbath. They would remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And while Nehemiah was in the city, the gates of the city were closed so that individuals couldn't even come in and out of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. What had transpired now was people were working on the Sabbath. People were making money on the Sabbath. People were treading the wine press and selling their wine. People were even later, look at uh, verse 19. It says people were bringing in fish and all kind of other food items. In verse 19 it says, When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut. And not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load can be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods uh, spent the night outside the walls. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I guarded the Levites to purify themselves, to go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. And so now they had broken their commitment to keep the Sabbath day as a day that was separate from all other days in honor of God and worship of him and rest from their labors. And Nehemiah made those merchants 
that had come to the gates of Jerusalem to stay outside. He wouldn't let them in with their products, no matter how much they might have complained. You can imagine those that were dealing with fish, that their fish was going to be ruined because they couldn't bring them into the city to be sold. It appears that when Nehemiah first did this, they still did not respond to Nehemiah because he continued to warn them and said, if you guys continue to camp out out there, he says, I will lay hands on you. Now he's threatening violence against them. And he's going to throw them off the property of Jerusalem. This is not a man to be trifled with, is it? And remember, this is 12 years later. You can imagine what some of the people are saying. We need to make a living, Nehemiah. How could you be telling us not to do this? They could be saying to him, you know, it's been a long time since you've been here. Things have changed. And you haven't even inquired very deeply about what is all transpiring here. But Nehemiah knew that they were doing wrong. And so he set himself to do something about it. The third thing that, and then he ends this section with a prayer. He says, remember me for this also, oh my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. And if that wasn't enough, that they were compromising their worship and treating with contempt the Sabbath, but then they were corrupting their faith. Look at verse 23. He says, moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. These were the nations that were the perennial enemies of the Jewish people. Ashdod, of course, is in the area of the Philistines, one of the major cities of the Philistines. And then Ammon and Moab, which is part of Jordan today, but on the east side of the Jordan River. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Nehemiah was really concerned that they were losing a sense of their Jewish identity. They no longer could speak Hebrew, so they couldn't read the law of God. They couldn't read the scripture. He said, I rebuked them. And he went further than that. He called curses down upon them, saying, may God bring judgment on you for all of these things. He said, I rebuked them, called curses. I beat some of the men. He said, I pulled out their hair. It was probably a reference to pulling out their beards. You know, this, this guy from Jersey. <laughs> he said, I made them take an oath in God's name. And said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. And this is the reason. This is not a racial thing. The reason is verse 26. Was it not because of marriages like that of Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? He said, was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? He had over 700 wives. And they were wives from other nations. They were political entities in order to uh, create a peace with some of his neighbors. But the result was these foreign wives brought in their foreign gods. And the people of Israel began to have their faith corrupted. Nehemiah's concern, the same thing will happen again. And when the faith of Israel was corrupted under the reign of Solomon, when he died, the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms. 
and has never been unified to this day and will not be unified until the Messiah comes. That's why in Ezekiel chapter 36, I think it is, Ezekiel is told to take two sticks and on one stick write Judah. On the other stick, write Israel, the name of the two tribes. And then put the sticks together and they will become echad, one, a unity in your hand. And by doing that, God was revealing to Ezekiel and through Ezekiel to the nation that when the Messiah comes, all the tribes of Israel will be reunified under one king. But after Solomon, the kingdom was never reunified. And the tribes were never brought together. And even to this day, to, uh, to identify what tribe a particular Jewish person is from is an impossibility, except to some degree with the tribe of Levi. But the point is that Nehemiah was concerned that by bringing in these nations through marriage, it would lead to a corruption of their faith. And so he says, he, he was um, among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. How could we think anything less would happen to us? And remember, Solomon was the wisest man in all the earth, the most discerning man in all the earth. And yet he too was led astray by this. He says, must we hear now that you are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Elishabib, the high priest, the son-in-law to Samballat. Here's the other enemy of Nehemiah, Tobiah and Samballat. So what has happened? Eliashib's daughter had married one of the sons of Jehoiada, who was the son of Samballat. So this is his granddaughter, the high priest uh, or grandson. And look what Nehemiah did. Though he was the grandson-in-law, I guess, to the high priest, I drove him away from me. He wanted no part of this. And he felt Israel could not afford to be connected in such ways. And so in verse 29, he concludes by saying, Remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So he concludes by saying, So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned to them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times for the altar and for the first fruits. And then he concludes with his fourth prayer, remember me with favor, O my God. And that's how the book ends. We know when we relate further and study Israel's history from this, they fall prey despite Nehemiah's reversals here. They will fall prey to their sin and fall prey to these kinds of wicked acts, as Nehemiah calls them, once again. It is an ongoing challenge to walk with the Lord. It is an ongoing challenge 
to be faithful unto him. It is not an easy thing to be a child of God. Certainly, the love of God is great, and it grabs our hearts, and we experience the salvation of our souls. That's the easy part, or at least seemingly so, because we've all come through various stages in order to get to that point in our lives when we would surrender to the living God. And once we surrender, we get that sense that we've arrived and we experience the peace that passes all understanding. But the trials then begin. And the question is, how do you deal with them? Nehemiah, I think, gives us some very serious lessons that we need to observe. The first is, if you're going to deal with challenges in your life, you have to be brutally honest about yourself. What I found really interesting in this passage is in the early verses, I'm probably not going to find it immediately, but around verse 7 or 8 or so, verse 7, he says, when he came back to Jerusalem, I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room. That struck me. I learned. That means to say Nehemiah was an observant individual. He was one who was willing to face the realities, no matter how hard they were or how wicked they were. He was willing to honestly face himself and the people whom he loved and served. If we are going to walk with the Lord, it will take that kind of brutal honesty. I must tell you, over the years that I've served in ministry and most uh, recently before coming here, having dealt with so many parents as a teacher for some 17 or 18 years, I've got to tell you that one of the things that was particularly impressive to me was that when I spoke with parents and they related to me how informed they were of their children, And on one side, you know, parents would say, yeah, I took a look at their Facebook account to see what they were doing. And our immediate response is, hey, wait a minute, that's private stuff. But, you know, these are parents that have to be concerned about their children. And if you want to be foolish and not know what your kids are looking at on the Internet, don't be surprised when you are very disappointed with what goes on in their lives subsequently. You must be brutally honest to face the challenges that are there. And that means you have to learn. And that means as a parent, you are particularly responsible to know what your kids are into. And that means knowing what they're looking at on the internet, what kind of music they may be listening to, what kind of friends that they have, what kind of families these friends come from. Now you may say, Garrett, man, you're really, really paranoid. No, I'm not really paranoid. I raised one in which I and Mary Lou were very much aware of what our son was into. It was not always pretty, but teens are not always as well-behaved as we might like. They sometimes remind us of what we were like when we were their age, and sometimes I like to forget what I was like. But let me just say, If you want to be a good parent, Father's Day is coming up, you better be informed of what your kids are into and what your kids are doing. If you want to be a good person, 
you better be willing to brutally look at yourself and say, is this really the way I want to be? Is this the kind of language I really want to use? Is this the kind of attitude I really want to exhibit? Are these the kinds of things that I really want to go to my death for? Or are they really things I ought to be more tolerant about and be more circumspect about the important matters of life? If you want to face or if you want to be changed, it necessitates brutal honesty about where we are. A second thing that I learned about Nehemiah is that you cannot compromise with regard to what it takes to be the kind of person you want to be. Look at what Nehemiah does. We might be sort of um, immediately want to respond and say, Nehemiah does not look like the model saint we would expect, pulling people's beards out, pulling them by the hair, saying, if you guys hang out here one more time, you know, I'm going to come down here, I'm going to show you, what you, you know, where you can stay. I mean, our immediate reaction is, you're not supposed to act like that. But what Nehemiah is trying to tell us is that if you want change to take place, it's going to take some real hard work and some intense giving up of things. It reminds me of Yeshua. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Talk about something hyperbolic and something extreme. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. This is what Nehemiah is exhibiting here. This is a, he says, a terrible wickedness. This is an evil thing. We would just say, hey, you know, they're just making some mistakes. Just kind of correct them, move them down the road. Be kind and gentle, you know. But Nehemiah is saying, man, you want changes in your life that uh, require real difference. Well, you got to get, you know, really hard in terms of what you will do to see that those changes take place. So on the one hand, we have to be brutally honest. On the other hand, we have to be uncompromising in what it will take for us to act and be different. But the third thing is, it needs to be all shrouded, enveloped in grace and in love. Look how he ends. The book ends with the most gracious statement, remember me with grace. That's what favor is. Remember me with grace, oh my God. And so while we look at the changes we need to make, we also need to remember that those changes cannot happen unless the grace of God is in it, unless God enables the changes to occur. And so therefore, we need to be dependent upon him. This isn't just an individual sort of, you know, getting a grip on himself. This is an individual who certainly is aware of his people's needs, but he's looking to God in order to bring his blessing to bear to make the difference that needs to be made. And if we're going to have the changes made in our own lives where we see they need to be made, it's going to take the grace of God to make us different. None of us has that kind of power or determination or fortitude to do it on our own. We must pray, remember me, O God, with favor. Remember me, O Lord, with grace. Indeed, 
cut that hand and take that eye out, but do it nicely, you know, or as nice as it can be done, you know. Help us to discard all of the garbage that we don't want to have and we are embarrassed to see and we despise when we are shown it by others. And we need to say, God, help me not be like that, but it will be by the grace of God. We need to be honest about what our needs are. We need to be willing to take that kind of action that will just say no and be uncompromising or yes, and we will do it. But we need to rely upon the full measure of the grace of God without which none of us can walk with the Lord or be transformed into his son's image. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this wonderful person of history, this wonderful individual in Scripture. So much to learn by his service and by his leadership. Most importantly, I think, above all else, may we learn the importance of prayer. For time and time again, that is what Nehemiah turns his attention to, either in giving praise and gratitude and thanksgiving for what God has accomplished, or in expressing the need that he sees around him. And so, Lord, may we, like Nehemiah, above all other things, be a people of prayer. And as we pray, Lord, may we seek to be the kinds of men and women you would have us to be. May we have the kind of courage to learn who we really are. May we have the kind of conviction that will make the choices that will lead us to becoming more like our Messiah day by day and moment by moment. And Father, may we devote ourselves to prayer by which all things are possible. And so, Lord, may we look to your grace the grace that can save and open our hearts to the living God and the grace that can transform our lives and make us more like Messiah himself. Might you do this for us, we pray, for we ask in Yeshua's name. Amen.